let me just also say thank you to all our volunteers. It's just uh, huge. Volunteers are like gold. Um, they, they, when, when people commit their lives to serve in the church like this, it just makes all the difference in the world. And so thank you for doing that. You're making a difference in the kingdom. I also want to welcome anybody that's here for the first time. If you're new to Res, uh, my name's Bradley. I'm one of the pastors, and we're just so glad that you're here. Let's welcome our visitors, too, because we're honored to have them. Stop by Welcome Center. Uh, we have a gift for you as well. Um, it's a little bit different gift, but we have one for you, and you can stop by Welcome Center and uh, take one of those connection cards on the seat backs in front of you and fill that out because we would love to connect with you in a deeper way, answer your questions, help you get plugged in here at Res. okay? So uh, how many of you had a blast last weekend, Halloween Hoopah, joint service with Greer Station? Wasn't that awesome? What a great, great day it was. Um, I was extremely tired when I got home, but it was well worth it to serve our city and, and worship with our friends over at Greer Station. What an awesome group of people. Uh, and two preachers kept it under 30 minutes. There's no video proof because we couldn't get the video to work, but I promise you it happened. It did, for those of you that weren't there. So uh, I'm not promising I'll do that today. There's 39 minutes and 25 seconds on that screen back there, so uh, I don't know. We'll see what happens. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 21. Acts 21. We're in a study through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a, is a history book in our Bibles about the early church when Jesus came to earth, which his life and ministry is recorded for us in the four Gospels. If you're not familiar with um, the Bible in this way, uh, his life and ministry is recorded in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, that is then followed by a book that's called the Acts of the Apostles. It's interesting that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he was a doctor. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but he was a doctor and a historian. He starts the book of Acts this way. He says, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, he said, my first book, which was the Gospel of Luke, was part one. And this is part two of all that Jesus did and taught. Here's the interesting thing about that, is that before you get to the end of chapter one of the book of Acts, Jesus leaves the planet physically, right? So that means that the work and ministry of Jesus continues beyond his resurrection and ascension through his church or his gathered ones, okay, of which you and I are a part. How many of you understand Jesus is an alive and active Savior, right? He's not just up in heaven or wherever you consider heaven to be, like out in the cosmos somewhere sitting on a throne twiddling his thumbs, He's active, he's present by his spirit, and he's working through his church, which the Bible also calls the body of Christ. And so we've journeyed in this book all the way to chapter 21, and we've gotten to know this guy named Paul. Paul is an apostle. He was formerly a Christian persecutor, but Jesus saved him, and he becomes a missionary. And he's nearing the end of his missionary career uh, when we get to the, uh, chapter 21 in the book of Acts. So let's pick up and read chapter 21. I'm going to read the first 14 verses, and then we'll talk about it, okay? Acts 21, verse 1. And when he had parted from them, we'll talk about what that means if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. 
And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. From there, the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. That's where Paul's headed. And these disciples are saying, don't go, Paul. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship. And they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we, agreed, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Father, I ask that you would, by your spirit, open our hearts and minds to your word. We'd be good listeners, learners, that we would give in to your spirit as you endeavor to transform us by renewing our mind. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. December 7th, 1941. I don't even know what that date is, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's the, the date that Franklin Roosevelt said would live in infamy. It's the date that Japan surprise attacked Pearl Harbor. Over 3,000 Americans were killed in that attack. Uh, it was a horrible day. Um, the United States, up until that point, had stayed out of World War II, which had begun some two years previous. But everything changed on December 7th. Franklin Roosevelt got up in front of Congress and he asked them to declare a state of war on Japan and the United States entered World War II. On December 8th, 1941, it was recorded that the largest number of volunteers for military service in American history took place. The, the recruitment offices across the country were overloaded overflowed with people, many of whom were too young or too old to volunteer for military service, but they still showed up and were willing. It's incredible. Largest number of volunteers in American history for military service. Many people who could not volunteer to serve, simply looking to do something, began to give money to the war effort. There were anti-war organizations that actually disbanded and donated their funds to the war effort. People started uh, scrap metal drives, paper drives, rubber drives. There, there was just an incredible sense of unity all the way across the country as people banded together and some, many, volunteered to serve in the military to defend the homeland. 
It's an amazing piece of our history, and it's one that we probably could look back on with a lot of pride and say, man, that, that's just amazing how America came together in that way against a common enemy. But it's easy to romance that and forget the humanity of it. I want you to picture with me a home in a neighborhood. I want you to picture people, a family, a husband, a wife, little children. I want you to picture a young mother and wife standing in her kitchen with tears in her eyes as she looks at her husband who's standing there telling her, Honey, I'm going to volunteer. It's what I've got to do. You can imagine the flood of emotions in her soul, can't you? The thoughts in her mind that are almost unspeakable. The same thoughts are in his mind, but he's determined. It's what he knows he's got to do, and perhaps she tries to talk him out of it. Think of the children, she might say. And he, he has those thoughts. The last thing he wants to do is leave his family and go fight in a war where he might die and never see his family again. But he's so compelled, it's what he's got to do. And no one's going to change his mind. That's kind of where the Apostle Paul is. We, we last, well, Actually, two weeks ago, we, we, we read in chapter 20 where the Apostle Paul met with the elders of a church in a city called Ephesus at a place called Miletus. He met with them, he calls them out, and he wants to talk with them. It's the last time he's going to see them because he knows he's going to Jerusalem and he's not sure exactly what's going to happen to him, but he has a sense that he's nearing the end of the ministry that Christ has given him to do. Let's, let's go back and look at that really quick in chapter 20. Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. And he says this in verse 18. He takes a look back. He spent three years with these people. And he says, and when he came to them, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, and with tears and through trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul rehearses, he reminisces with them over three years of fruitful ministry. And here's what he says. This is how I served the Lord among you. With humility, with tears, and with trials. Three words. We could probably fill in some blanks there, right, with those three words. It was painful. He faced opposition. People stood in his way. It was hard. He cried with people in their struggles. He bore their burdens. Yeah, it was fruitful. Yeah, God did a lot of great things. Paul doesn't minister out of obligation. He's not, when he talks about being compelled, he's not, he's not saying that I'm just bound against my will. Paul ministers out of joy for Christ but it's hard. And he looks back and he says, this is what it was like. And I didn't stop. I didn't refrain from teaching you anything that was profitable, even when it was hard, even when there were tears, even when there were trials. He looks back and he says, this is how I took up my cross and followed Jesus among you for three years. You with me? Then he looks forward. Verse 22. 
And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained, bound, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing exactly what's going to happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of of the grace of God. So when Paul looks forward, what does he anticipate? More tears, more trials, more humility, more pain. I don't know exactly what's going to happen in Jerusalem when I get there, but I just know that the Holy Spirit has given me a hint. It's probably going to hurt. Right? And that's what he's looking forward to with joy. But yet Paul is a man just like we are men and women. He's, he's, he's human. He's, he's looking forward. And, and he says to these Ephesian elders, if you read to the end of the chapter, he's like, look, you're not going to see my face again. I'm going to the end. And Luke says that they all wept with not a few tears. They cried, they hugged, they kissed. We're not going to see Paul again. And he leaves. Can you imagine how hard that was? So he leaves the Ephesian elders. And what we get in chapter 21 from Luke is kind of like a travel log. And don't slough over these details in your Bible. Because I think verses 1 through 14, it really lets us taste the humanity of this. It's easy to read your Bible it's easy to read these incredible stories and, and, and maybe subconsciously treat them like they're fairy tales. Treat them like these are, these are epic tales that are just, you know, great to read and they're kind of inspiring. But, but I'm detached from that. That's not real life for me. Right? But these details are incredible. Let's just look at them, okay? They, they'll help you taste the humanity. First of all, In Acts 21, we get what is known as the we passages. We passages. In other words, Luke, the writer, is present for this. He wasn't present for everything in Acts, but he's here now with Paul. He's part of Paul's entourage, okay? And so the first thing they do is they put in a boat from Miletus. And if you you, kind of look at some of the commentators and, and biblical scholars, they say this was probably what was called a coasting ship, a small boat coasting ship because it would hug the coast. It wasn't big enough to get out into the open sea. So they're having to make their way to a bigger ship so that they can get over to Jerusalem. So he gets on this coasting ship and they sail to Kos. Anybody heard of Kos before? If you know anything about ancient history, Kos was known to have one of the most prestigious medical schools in ancient history. It was founded by Hippocrates from which we get the Hippocratic Oath. That's where they are. It's pretty cool, isn't it? That has nothing to do with my sermon, but there you go. Take that with you. So, so they, go, they go to Kos, and then they, they, they leave Kos, and they go over to Rose, and then to Patara, and they get on a cargo ship. They book passage on this cargo ship, a larger vessel, so they can go out to sea, and they sail over to Tyre. Okay, The ship's got to unload and reload, and so they're there for seven days. And while they're there, they go look for some disciples that they know they're entire. They go and find these disciples. And they hang out with them for seven days. And here's what happens. Luke says, by the Spirit, these disciples started begging Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, I don't think that means 
that the Holy Spirit was telling these disciples, tell Paul that I said not to go. I just think that the Holy Spirit bore witness with these disciples the same thing he had already told Paul. Paul already knows this. Peril is awaiting in Jerusalem. It's coming. And they're begging Paul not to go. But he won't listen. He's hard-headed. Anybody hard-headed? I'm not hard-headed. Begging Paul not to go. And I love that Luke gives us this detail. He won't listen. And so here's what they do. These disciples, they get their wives. They get their children. And they, all, they, they gather up with Paul's entourage. And they walk down to the beach. Ship's ready to go. And they walk with Paul down to the beach. And when they get there, they kneel down in the sand. And they start to pray. We don't know what they prayed. But you can imagine the scene, right? This is ominous. This is sad. They love Paul. They don't want any harm to befall him. The Holy Spirit's testifying that there's trouble awaiting. There's, there's pain ahead. There's imprisonment. Maybe even death ahead for Paul. We don't want that to happen. Paul don't go, but yet there's something in all of them that says, yes, this is where Jesus is leading. So they pray. Paul and his group, they get on the ship. Disciples, their wives and their children, they go back home. So then the ship puts in again. They head over to Ptolemaeus where they stay for one day. They greet some disciples there and then they come to Caesarea. And they go over to Philip's house. Remember Philip? Chapter 7, right? He's one of the original deacons chosen for the ministry of service. He's an evangelist. And he's got, by this point, he's gotten married. This is, this is, these are real people, right? These are not superheroes. This is not Marvel comics. These are real people. This Philip's gotten married and he's got four daughters. And guess what? All four daughters have the gift of prophecy. And Luke doesn't tell us, when they get to Philip's house, Luke doesn't tell us if or what, if anything, that they prophesied to Paul while he was there. But I can't help but think, given the context, that Luke would give us that detail for any other reason except that the Spirit was testifying to these four girls the same thing that the disciples were hearing in Tyre, the same thing that Paul knew already in his own spirit. There's trouble ahead. There's trouble ahead. Jesus is leading and there's danger, there's peril, there's it's probably going to be painful. Regardless of what these girls did or did not prophesy, another prophet shows up. His name is Agabus. He's coming from Judea. And Agabus walks up in there in the house. He walks straight over to Paul and he says, Paul, can I have your belt? That's a little weird. I mean, I mean I, I've never had another man walk up to me and ask for my belt. But anyway... Paul gives him his belt. And this dude proceeds to tie up his own hands and feet. And he looks at Paul and he says, Paul, this is what they're going to... Now Paul's getting some detail, right? I don't know exactly what's awaiting me in Jerusalem. Now he's getting some detail. The Lord has spoken through Agabus. This is what they're going to do to you when you get to Jerusalem. They're going to bind you up. And we all know probably what's on the other side of that. Right? I'm going to bind you up. And then Luke says, 
everybody in the house started begging Paul, don't go. So it's not only Philip, his four daughters, and a prophet coming from Judea. It's now Paul's own entourage. Don't go. Let's stop right here. Paul, you've done enough. You've done more in two and a half missionary trips than most people would hope to accomplish in five lifetimes. Let's stop right here. There's no need for this. Don't go. What does Paul say? Verse 13. He says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. Now, put yourself in Paul's shoes, okay? Don't, don't, don't detach from the story. Just put yourself right there. And, and you don't have to work real hard to do that, do you? Because you've been there. It may not have been a life or death situation like Paul, but maybe, you were, maybe you've been in a place where Jesus was leading you to go on a short-term mission trip, and you knew you were going to have to burn vacation time at work to do that. And maybe your coworkers, friends, family members, they looked at you sideways and like, I can't fathom why you would do that. And you look and you see people, your peers, going on these incredible vacations and you look and you see what they're doing and yet there's something in you that says, that's not what life's about. And Jesus is leading you and prompting you and urging you to spend your life and your money in a different kind of way. But there are people looking at you like, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Maybe Jesus is leading you to stay in a difficult marriage, an incredibly difficult marriage, and be faithful in it, and do the hard thing of loving your spouse when they're not loving you back. And your friends are looking at you, and maybe with what they consider to be the best of intentions, they're looking at you and they're saying, why don't you just bail? They're tired of seeing you suffer. But yet Jesus is... You feel something on the inside that's greater than your feelings. It's greater than your sense of entitlement. It's greater than what you think you deserve. You feel Jesus leading you. Be faithful, trust me. Yeah? Maybe, maybe you've been offered a, a career opportunity or a promotion for a lot more money. And, and, and you look at it on paper and it's like, it makes perfect sense. This is awesome, but yet there's something on the inside of you Jesus is saying, I want you to turn that down because I've got something else for you to do. I want you to devote more of your time to ministry, to your marriage, to your children. There's something that I know is coming that you don't see yet. I want you to turn it down. And your friends, your family members, they're looking at you like you're crazy. Opportunities like this don't come around, but maybe once in a lifetime. How could you turn that down? I could go on and on with examples all day long. You get the point, right? I'm talking about that place, that crossroads, right? It's that crossroads where you, you see your friends, they're pursuing dating relationships. They're chasing after partying and having a good time and carefree living. But there's something inside of you that says, don't settle for that. You wait, you be patient, you trust me. 
I've got something better for you. And your friends are like, why don't you just live your life? What are you waiting on? It's that place where in one direction is that inner knowing of where Jesus is leading. And in the other direction is our comfort, ease, safety. What seems manageable, what seems reasonable, what seems like it fits in our lives. We've all been there. You remember that old song, Where He Leads Me, I Will Follow? I Can Hear My Savior. I think I wrote the lyrics down. I hear my Savior calling, take up thy cross and follow me. Where he leads me, I will follow. I'll go with him. I'll go with him all the way. Remember that? When I first got saved, I could sing that song, and I meant it. I meant it. Jesus could have shown up and said, go to Iraq, and I'd have packed that night. Then I matured in the Christian faith. (laughs) And as I matured, the song changed. The lyrics changed. It went from where he leads me, I will follow, to most places he leads me, I will follow. (laughs) And then I matured a little more, and it went to a select few places he leads me, I will follow. And then I ended up where a lot of Christians end up. It's where he leads me as long as it's convenient, easy, comfortable, marginally sacrificial, I will follow. It's, it's, it's that thing in all of us that resists. You, you realize for the believer, we have a new nature, Right? Created in Christ, we're new creation. We've been rebirthed by the Spirit, and we have this we have this new nature that longs for the kingdom of God. It longs for the kingdom of God beyond and above and beyond this life. But then there's that old part of us that still longs for safety, for comfort, for ease, for what seems to make sense and what we can manage. And it's right there that we find this conflict. The difference between Paul and many Christ followers is this. Is that Paul did not have a death grip, pardon the pun, on this life. Instead, he had loosened his grip on this life because of what he had been gripped by. You follow me? There, there are really two paths to take in life. It's, it's the path that's marked out either by what you're grabbing a hold of or it's the path that's marked out because of what's grabbed a hold of you. And when you start to live by what's grabbed a hold of you, suddenly you start to hold a lot of other things more loosely. And I think that's what Jesus was trying to convey when he said this. We looked at it two weeks ago. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Look at this with me. And he said to all, this is on the heels of Jesus telling his disciples, look, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. 
Jesus, Paul's on a very similar path to Jesus, isn't he? Not that Paul's Jesus. Paul didn't save anybody with his own death. But he's following Jesus. That's what Christians are, right? They're Christ followers. And Jesus says, disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And then look what he says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus didn't hold his life on this earth in a tight grip either. He willingly laid it down because of what he was gripped by. The Father's glory, the Father's will, the kingdom of God. That's what he was gripped by, and so he held his life loosely and he laid it down. The Christian life, listen to me, because I, I, I don't know everybody in this room, and I don't know what your church backgrounds are, and I don't know what you've been taught. I don't know where your theology lands on a lot of things. But here's what I can tell you for certain. Being a Christian is not, it's not life on your terms. Okay? It, it, it's not. It's, it's laying down your terms and picking up Jesus' terms because what you come to understand, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more, is that Jesus' terms are better. Why are they better? Because they last. They're eternal. There's a greater joy that's rooted in something deeper than anything temporary could offer you. It's a lay, that's what picking up your cross means. It means you lay down life on your terms. You deny yourself. You hold this life loosely because of what's gripped you. That's what Jesus did. And he says, if you, if you want to come after me, you want to follow me, you want to be my disciple, you can't grip your life tight. You can't hold on to your money, your time, your relationships, your house, your car, your job. You can't hold on to that with this, like a vice grip. Because if you do that, you're going to lose the life I'm offering you. You're not going to live my kind of life. You'll forfeit it. What's at the bottom? What's at the bottom of you? This is really probably one of the most, it, it, I think it is, it's the most important question. It's at the bottom of you. I'm, the more I read scripture, and the more I understand the gospel, the older I get, the harder, more difficult it becomes to reconcile a life where Christians, people who call themselves Christians, all they want, all they want is a good job, a good family, a nice house, a nice car. They want to be healthy. They want to go on great vacations. They want to have a fun retirement. They want to die easy and no hell. And if offered it, if offered it, they'd take all of that. If they were offered that and they didn't have to give a rip about Jesus, they didn't have to give a rip about the kingdom, they didn't have to give a rip about any of this denying themselves stuff. If offered it, they'd take it and run with it. 
all we want. I don't care if my life makes a difference. I don't care. I really don't care about that. I just want to live my life, enjoy my life, die easy, no hell. Do you think Paul was driven by the simple fact that he didn't want to go to hell? No, that's not what drove Paul. What drove Paul could be summarized in a parable that Jesus told. He said the kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in a field when a man finds it for joy, for joy, for joy, for joy, for joy. I'm going to say it till you get it. For joy. He sells all he has and buys the field. Whoa. What's at the bottom of you? There's only two options. Two options at the bottom of you and the bottom of me. Two options. And it is possible to get down there in the bottom of you and find what's there. Your root joy. The root of your motivations. The joy that has no basis because it's at the foundation. It's possible to get down there. And the best way to get down there is just keep asking yourself why. Why? 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 Why, why am I pursuing this? Why, why am I going in this direction? Why do those things make me happy? Why do these things make me sad? Why do I spend the bulk of my time and the bulk of my money on these things? So you could say, well, why, why, why do you... Somebody could ask you, why do you spend the bulk of your money and time on these things? And you might say, because I love my family. That's, that's, a, that's a layer or two down, right? But it's not the bottom. Why do you love your family? Well, I, I love... But, 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 you see what I'm talking about? There's something down there. You keep asking why, and you ask the Holy Spirit to help you, you'll get down to the bottom of you. And when you get down to the bottom of you, there's only two options, Christian or not, Bible believer or not, Church person or not, there's only two options down there. Here's option number one of what's at the bottom. You. Me. You can keep asking enough why, enough why questions, more than one or two, and you get down there, and if it's you, you'll know it. It won't be that hard to determine that everything you do, every dollar you spend, every dollar you give away, Every time you take time for yourself, every time you serve somebody else. Everything. When you give, love, serve, hoard, take. Whatever it is that you do, you can get down there. You keep asking enough why questions. And for some people, what's down there is them. Everything's about them. Everything's about you. And here's the problem with you being down there. When you get to the crossroads... Jesus is leading, but everything else in me and people that are around me are pulling me this way. Guess what happens? You bail. You try to save your life, and you lose it. You don't take up your cross, because life's still on your terms. So you bail, and I've been there. I have been there so many times, where I have me at the bottom of me, and because I'm at the bottom of me, I don't listen to Jesus. I don't participate with Him in His kingdom agenda because 
there are just times, let's just be honest, where it's hard. You have to... You have to depend on the Spirit and dive into the Word to let your joy in Christ and His kingdom be refreshed so that even when He's pointing you to Jerusalem and there's a prophet showing up and says, this is what's going to happen, you're undeterred. Because you're like Paul. I count all things as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth knowing Christ my Lord so option number one at the bottom of you is you me here's option number two God God's at the bottom of you and can I can I let me help us a little bit because getting you out of the bottom of you God being replaced, that exchange. Listen carefully. It's not a moral decision that you make. It's not like you weigh those options and just go, yeah, I think I'll put God at the bottom of me. Because that seems more right. No, a miracle has to happen for that exchange. A miracle, a divine work of God by the Spirit has to happen. That work, its starting point, we call it being born again. We call it salvation. We call it a new creation in Christ Jesus. Paul called it in Ephesians coming from death into life. That transfer has to happen and it's not something that you do on your own it's a work of the spirit that you give into because deep down on the inside of every believer if you have been a Christian for a while and you're at the crossroads right now of where Jesus is leading and where everything else seems to point you if you're at that crossroads and you're struggling because maybe a little more of you has creeped back down into the bottom of you, here's what I can promise you is that the Holy Spirit in you is working to fight that off and replace it with joy, with a seeing and savoring of the beauty and worth of Christ to such a degree that you prefer Him regardless of what the path ahead looks like from where you are right now. And so the thing to do if you're at the crossroads is just give in. Say yes. Can I, can, I, can I give you some good news? God is not in the business of just making us do hard stuff because he likes to watch us squirm. He's not. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I think he's in the business of Telling us, don't settle. Don't settle. Don't settle for the American dream. That's pitiful. That's pitiful. Oh, you want a fun retirement and an easy death? So what? What happens when you get to eternity? And you stand before God. And all of a sudden you realize, this life was a breath. 
Light and momentary affliction. Don't settle for that. Follow me. Take up your cross. Follow me. And I know, I just, I was praying this morning, and, and the Lord just seemed to make it so clear to me that there, there's at least one person, maybe more, in this room. You're at that crossroads right now. And you have this sense of where Jesus is leading, but you're having trouble singing the song where he leads. I will follow. Because everything else is pointing in a different direction. And what's becoming clear is that maybe God's not at the bottom of you. You are, or at least you've crept back down in there and taken up some of the space. And here's what I know. Listen, I don't know the circumstances of your crossroads. I, I, I don't know what it is that Jesus is leading you to do. I don't know what direction it is that everything else seems to be pulling you. But here's what I know for sure. I know this for sure because this is what the Bible teaches. Is that if you'll give in to the Spirit's work, if you'll give in, He will refresh you in your joy in Jesus. And as He refreshes you in your joy in Jesus and you follow, you follow where He leads, it will be good. It will bring God glory, and your joy will increase. It will not diminish. But what if, what if there's pain ahead? What if there's hurt ahead? What if there's rejection ahead? What if there's death ahead? I promise you. I didn't promise it. God promised it. Your joy will not diminish. It will increase even in death. Even in pain. It will increase because he's worth it. Give in. Say yes. I got to do it too. I, 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 I have to remind myself of this too. We're all in this boat together. But just for today, let the Spirit cause that song to rise up where he leads. I'll follow. I'll go with him. Not just part of the way. All the way. Stand with me. Father, this is beyond me. It's beyond my friends. It's beyond our strength and our capabilities. But I hear the words of Paul in Philippians where he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So for my friends who are at the crossroads this morning, I ask Holy Spirit, that you would overwhelm, that you would conquer our old man, our old woman, our flesh, and lead us, lead us, lead us to be Christ-following, cross-bearing, compelled 
by the Father's glory kind of Christians. And don't let us settle for less. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.